Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the seventh show in our ICE series. In order to understand the ICE series, I urge you to listen to the first show of the series online in the public archives of WERU.org. Webinaki Windows dated 2-28-23, Isolation, Control, and Elimination. This series is dedicated to the Webinaki people in Maine to help them understand the history of Webinaki state relations. We have read every word of the three transcripts on the air and have discussed the implications. We now turn to the Legislative Research Committee's conclusions and recommendations to address the Indian problem and the final solutions. Our guests today <clears throat> include one of my co-authors of One Nation Under Fraud or Remonstrance, Judge Eric Menert, as well as Professors Harold Prince and Darren Ranko. Um, Eric Menert is Chief Judge of the Penobscot Tribal Court. Professor Harold Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at the University of Kansas. Professor Dan Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and Professor of Anthropology and Chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. Welcome to everyone. So we begin by reading <clears throat> the LRC report and recommendations, and we'll discuss this on the other side. So Harold, we start. Uh, this is a uh, chapter Maine Indians, and this is the background that I'm going to be reading. Since 1820, the state of Maine has acted as guardian for the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribes of Indians, assuming by the act of separation in 1819, all the responsibilities formerly exercised by the state of Massachusetts. These responsibilities consisted mainly in delivering to the Penobscots, quote, every year, so long as they shall remain a nation, end quote, certain foodstuffs and cloth having a present value of approximately $2,000 annually and in setting up certain lands for the exclusive use of both tribes. In 1833, the state purchased part of the Penobscot lands, crediting the purchase price of $50,000 to said Indians. This was the beginning of the Penobscot Indian Fund. The Passamaquoddy Indian Fund was established in 1856 by a deposit of $22,500 for a 15-year lease of timber, grass, and water power rights. From 1834 to 1859, the Indians were provided for by specific appropriation of sums for schools, goods due by treaty, and such other assistance as the legislature chose to provide by annual resolution. The Penobscot Indians also had the annual interest from their trust fund and income from shore rents. Starting in 1860, the interest on both funds was appropriated for the annual use of the agents and other specific and additional appropriations were made. After 1936, it became the practice to cover all necessary Indian expenses by means of one total appropriation on a budget basis interest on both trust funds being transferred annually to the general funds of the state. 
Since 1936, these appropriations have approximated $100,000 annually. And since 1909, the state has thus spent over $2 million on the combined Indian tribes, providing supervision, food, lodging, medical care, schooling, bounties, and so on to all needy Indians. In 1934, 95% of the members of the tribes were supported entirely. In 1940, 44% of the appropriation was spent for groceries. In 1940, 106 Penobscot Indian families had 60, 60 employable men, 30 of which were on WPA, 25 employed in canoe and moccasin factories from four to six months in the year. Five had steady employment for 11 months of the year. Of 140 Passamaquoddy families with 65 employable men in the same year, the Indian agent reports, quote, we have only six families in the tribe that we do not help with food and clothing. Outside of these six families, the Indians are all on steady relief when we do not have any WPA work, end quote. In 1822, there were 277 Penobscots and 379 Passamaquoddies, a total of 656. In 1942, there were 584 Penobscots and 616 Passamaquoddies, a total of 1,200. The period of greatest increase was from the years 1932 to 1942 inclusive, in which there occurred a numerical increase from 1,014 Indians to 1,200 Indians, representing the equivalent of a percentage increase of 18.3%. In the membership of both tribes, there are a total of 73 intermarriages with whites and seven with Canadian Indians. There are 192 children by such intermarriages, which by an estimated 35 Illegitimates gives a total of 227 children of mixed blood classified as Indians who can continue to produce families of so-called, quote, Indians, end quote, who will enjoy all tribal privileges. If these children should marry whites, their offspring would still be, quote, Indians, end quote, and so the tribe continues to increase with less and less Indian blood. The third generation would be one quarter Indian and three quarters white. Yeah. Now we're to section two, uh, proposed legislation. Uh, legislative document number 694, an act relating to loss of membership to Indian tribes by marriage, uh, quote unquote, provides a partial restriction upon the continuance of the process. As originally submitted for study, it read as follows. PL 1933, um, um, number one, section 256 amended, section 256 of chapter one of the public laws of 1933 is hereby amended by adding at the end thereof a new paragraph to read as follows. If any woman who is a member of the tribe marries a man who is neither a member of the tribe nor eligible for membership therein, she shall forfeit her membership in the tribe and shall not be eligible for adoption into the tribe during the period of such marriage. All provisions of this section shall apply to the Passamaquoddy tribe of Indians, as well as to the Penobscot tribe, and such persons shall be subject to removal from the tribal reservations as provided in sections 261 and 291 of this chapter. 
The committee recommends revision of the proposed amendment to read as follows. If any Indian who is a member of either the Passamaquoddy or Penobscot tribes marries a man or woman who is a member of neither tribe nor eligible for membership therein, he shall forfeit his membership in the tribe and shall not be eligible for adoption into the tribe during the period of such marriage, and such persons shall be subject to removal from the tribal reservations as provided in sections 261 and 291 of this chapter. In this form, the bill is recommended for passage as an element in the policy that may limit the membership in the tribes and limit state responsibility for guardianship to those having at least one quarter Indian blood. Section three, recommended Indian fund adjustments. In the course of the study, certain minor items in connection with the handling of Indian affairs have come to our attention, although these minor discrepancies have been more than counterbalanced by the liberal financial policy of the state towards the Indians. The following items have been brought to our attention and recommendations are made to clear the record. Number one, on October 11th, 1835, three of the Penobscot Islands are sold at auction for $7,550. See page 17, report on Maine Indians. These were included in the islands and the Penobscot River ceded to the Indians in belonging to them. Treaty of 1818, page 16 of the report. They did not receive this money. It should be paid to the Penobscot Indian Fund without interest. The Treaty with Massachusetts in 1794, page 21 report, granted to the Passamaquoddy Indians 15 islands in the St. Croix River. The Indians never obtained these, these islands. The Indian agent, following a legislative resolution in 1854, see Public Laws 1854, Chapter 139, page 22 report, reported in 1855 regarding conflicting claims on these islands. The islands were apparently granted to William Bingham in 1793, a year before being granted to the Indians, page 23 report, and were estimated by the Indian agent in 1855 to be worth $2,000. As the Indians lost these islands and Maine had taken over the responsibilities of Massachusetts in relation to them, the Passamaquoddy should be reimbursed this amount of $2,000 without interest by payment of such sum to the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund. Number three, in 1855, a special committee of the Governor's Council was appointed to defend the title of the Indian City of All Islands, Resolutions 1855, Chapter 248, Report, page 23, and recommended that the attorney for the state of the county, uh, state and the county of Washington be in, instructed to appear for the state in an, a, an action to trespass by Joseph Granger, then owner of the islands. The state lost and paid in 1878 the sum of $2,486.17, resolution February 21st, 1876, to satisfy the court decision in favor of Joseph Granger. This sum was paid, however, from the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund. Thus, the Indians not only lost these islands, but had to satisfy the action of trespass on land that had been ceded to them, which they believed was their property. The committee recommends that the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund be reimbursed this $2,486.17 without interest. The sum of $22,911.05 has been estimated as the amount of the Penobscot Indian Fund, which may not be recovered from impounded bank accounts, and the sum of $1,718.70 in the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund is estimated as similarly involved. See report pages 39-40, Department of Audit. In addition, the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund holds $10,000 of city leaseport bonds which are now in default and upon which future realization remains undetermined. The committee feels that these sums were deposited in banks 
of the state of Maine and in bonds of the city of Eastport in good faith, and the losses which may be incurred are the result of no more than the normal hazards accompanying any investment program, and that no negligence on the part of the state uh, uh, in so investing the Indian funds is apparent, and therefore recommends no restoration of these sums to the funds. Number five, during the years 18, uh, 1938 and 30, to 39, 1939 to 1940, balances of $1,124.91 and $2,752 $2, uh, respectively accrued and by precedent should have been turned into the Passamaquoddy Fund. The budget officer at this time ruled that basic legislation had expired, uh, the resolution of 1868. And there was no legal basis for de depositing these funds in said account. Report page five. The total of these balances, $3,877.12, was turned into the general fund. Later legislation set up the Indian uh, Township Administration Fund into which receipts could go. The sum for these two intervening years, however, had not been re returned to the Indians, and the committee recommends that the legislature now authorize the payment of these sums into the fund without interest. In making these recommendations, the committee is basing its conclusions not upon any recognized legal obligation, but solely upon a sense of the state of its responsibility for the protection of Indian welfare. In recommending that not, not interest be included, the committee is mindful of the fact that its contributions and appropriations to the Indians over the period of many years has exceeded by hundreds of thousands of dollars any of its financial obligations arising from the treaties with the Indians. Section four, laws relating to the Indians. Examination of laws relating to Indians as revised in 1933 and amended thereafter has brought to attention several provisions in these laws that have apparently not been brought up to date as the responsibility of Indian affairs has been shifted. From 1820 to 1929, the governor and council had legal charge of Indian affairs, assisted from 1839 on by a committee of the legislature on Indian affairs. In 1929, this responsibility was shifted to the forestry department where it remained only three years until transferred to the Department of Health and Welfare in January 1932. The present laws will provide for the appointment of the Indian agent by the governor and council. This appointment should logically be made by the responsible department, that is the Department of Health and Welfare. The health officer for the Passamaquoddies is still appointed by the governor and council. The corresponding position for the Penobscot is appointed by the director of health with the approval of the Department of Health and Welfare. The health officer occupies an extremely important position and should be chosen with great care. The committee recommends that the health officer for each tribe be appointed by the Commissioner of Health and Welfare upon recommendation of the Director of Health. Number three, numerous definitions have been given as to what constitutes an Indian. An Indian has been defined, for example, as a person having at least one quarter Indian blood, as a person who looks like an Indian, or as a person whose father and mother were Indians. The committee recommends that an Indian be de defined for all purposes as a person who has at least one quarter Indian blood. Eric. Long-term policy towards the Indians. It is elementary that people who have no need for self-dependence and self-reliance seldom develop it. That is the status of the main Indians today. Whether this attitude is wholly or in part Indian nature, or whether it has been created by the paternalistic attitude of the state in providing for them is a matter for conjecture. Possibly both factors have contributed. 
The committee feels that at least the elements of the Indian problem have been cleared and concurs in the following statement. In order to arrive at any solution of the Indian question, we must first determine whether or not the state of Maine actually owes anything to the Indians, accepting the materials which, were worth, which are worth approximately $2,000 a year under the treaties. There are those amongst the Indians themselves and other places and in other places who have maintained that the Indians in Maine were robbed. Our conclusion is that is not so. They have been amply repaid for whatever they gave up and excessively well-treated on the financial side, that they never owned or occupied the whole of the state of Maine, that the numbers of the Indians at the time of the treaties show the impossibility of their having reduced to possession any substantial part of the state, and that as a result of the above conclusions, the state is in the position to deal with the Indians fairly, but on a realistic basis with a policy looking to the eventual self-dependence and self-reliance of each Indian. As elements of a long-term policy, the committee makes the following suggestions as a basis for further study by the Department of Health and Welfare. We believe that these indicate a trend in the direction towards which Indian policy should be directed. One, provide definite vocational training for Indian youth and find jobs for them wherever employment becomes available. Two, sponsor a business on the basis of Indian handicraft to provide regular employment for those who are too old or otherwise unable to profit from vocational training. Three, encourage agriculture by material help, supervision, and definite ownership of land to those who will work it. Four, restrict state aid to those who are physically unable to find a place in the above program. The combination of recommendations contained in this report will do much toward placing the Indians eventually on the same basis as any other citizens, a privilege to which they are undoubtedly legally, undoubtedly entitled legally. Let them understand that they must become self-sustaining, make them understand this by law, show them the way, give them the means to become self-sustaining, and they may succeed. Conclusion. The committee hopes that the legislature may find the contents of its several reports helpful and constructive. The individual members of the committee have enjoyed the work and pleasant associations, associations which they have had together over a period of two years. Copies of the evidence taken at the several hearings will be filed with the 91st legislature. Dated at Augusta, Maine, this first day of December, A.D. 1940, respectfully submitted Robert B. Dow, Horace A. Hildreth, Jean Charles Boucher on the part of the Senate, W. Mayo Payson, Roy S. Libby, Roland J. Poulin, Lorenzo J. Pelletier on the part of the House. Okay. Um, so, uh, Darren, do you have comments? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's this is such a an interesting look into uh, notions associated with final solutions uh, in terms of the Indian quote unquote problem. Um, I find, you know, there's so many contradictions. I mean, the language is very paternalistic. Um, I mean, the, the the thing that really stepped out in, in my section of like what constitutes an Indian in terms of erasure and, and um, contradiction was 
at the end they define an Indian with a quarter Indian blood, but then they <laughs> they had just laid out a series of ways in which any outmarriage would have resulted in loss of Indian status. Uh, so that that doesn't jive. They didn't even reference the earlier section. They just you know so that they didn't even jive like what this recommendation would be. Um, and I I feel like you know they're picking up on that. You know this is obviously. Um, in Canada and, and elsewhere, you know, this sort of outmarriage and loss of uh, Indian status had been well established, you know, for when this report was written for 60, 70 years as one of the ways in which um, to disabuse and get out of responsibilities through treaties and redefining who's an Indian and that sort of thing. And, and to impose not only a racialized context uh, uh, of, uh, as well as a uh, paternalistic one where uh, initially, you know, the, it was about women out marriage and they're losing status and then uh, children as well. Um, but at least I will, you know, hand it to me, like they said, any out marriage. So they at least uh, got rid of the paternalistic. It was just purely racist in this in this regard. So that was uh, helpful, I guess, uh, progressive in, 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 a, in a sense. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, the 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 other pieces of like uh, apparently uh as Indians, we are in the business of offering um, decades-long interest-free loans to the state of Maine, uh, which I thought was so generous of us. I didn't really uh, understand that as to how how that works for them. I guess it was uh, they make up for that with just this sense that they were so generous for so long by taking our lands and and giving us some some resources for that. Um, that's also kind of striking. Um, but but it I was think nice that, of you now as well not to require any repayment either. Yeah, that's right. And even sometimes they're like, well, <laughs> oh, so it goes. we don't see, we don't see any, yeah, we don't see any negligence <laughs> in the fact that we put money in these bank accounts that are now defined. I mean, that's, that's, that I don't, I, Eric, I mean, I don't know, but that sounds negligent to me. I, I just can't. Uh, sounds negligent you know, to it, me. It, if, it was a, if it was a trustee that did that, they would be on the hook on it. Like in terms of the trust, you know, in that uh, banking law situation, they would actually be on the hook. For on the it. hook for it, yeah. But, um, okay. So all those disabusing and, and logics are just so, um, you know, patently offensive on some level. And then uh, I, I do think this um, this logic, and this has come up uh, quite a few times of like the idea that our, you know, that treaties and retained lands were somehow excessive, that we couldn't possibly work the land, you know, like th these are both um, um, culturally specific, right? In terms of what does it mean to own or work the land? Um, and and what that gives people rights to in terms of ownership or control over over places, and I thought that was that 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 sense of in the paternalistic role that like they couldn't also possibly have really had ownership, they couldn't work the land. I wonder if they would if the state also felt similarly with very large landowners. Um, should, would they be taking lands from? you know, the proprietors uh, of the 19th century, because those individuals obviously could not work all of the land that they owned, you know, uh, upwards of hundreds of thousands of acres. Um, I find this logic to be completely, um, you know, racist in its orientation. It makes them not very good capitalists either. If they're saying like, each person can only have land, 
the land that they can uh, physically work themselves. That would that would be a shocking state uh, seizure of property that um, I think most Mainers would not have stood for, but somehow makes sense in the context of Indians. So I think that's that's that overarching uh, disabusing kind of logic that allows them, you know, if you're like, who is this a policy or how would this be applied to other people who are not actively working all the land that they own? They would just say Indians are different, right? They, they would they would appeal to the racist tropes that, that is, are embedded into it. So I think those are my initial reactions. I, I just, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why we're reading this um, and, and engaging in such a long engagement with with this uh, with this legislation and this record is that they're saying so much of the quiet stuff out loud for us to see, and it allows us to make those connections, right? That you know they didn't like the treaties because it just basically gave too much land to the, to the Indians, and um, somehow we have to uh, get, you know redo that or, or through some fiat uh, without you know, and then carrying through this logic of, you know, uh, no no interest loans for decades and decades. All of that is just um, the quiet part out loud. So those are my first takes on it. Harold. Well, a quick uh, comment regarding what um, uh, Darren just mentioned uh, with respect to um, farming the land. Of course, that argument goes back to John Locke, right? Uh, we know that uh, from um, the uh, philosopher's tradition that everything is in a state of nature until and unless it has been worked, right? So the working of the land. And Darren is correct that even in the time of John Locke, um, there was a huge uh, distinction made between what counted for everyday people like yeomen, farmers, and uh, other settlers, as opposed to the big landowners also in, uh, in, at that time in England. Uh, in England, you had uh, huge landowners who didn't work the land and used these lands for hunting territories like the New Forest and many other places. And the Highland clearings, of course, uh, in, uh, in Scotland uh, in the course of the 19th century uh, was elimination of farmers from the Highlands in order to create these large hunting domains for the lairds. So there are these inter internal contradictions that, uh, that were just mentioned. Uh, Back to the uh, Indian problem, um, a good thing is to ask ourselves who sets the problem, who creates the problem, and who is responsible for the problem, and who solves the problem. And Darren already referred to the paternalistic mindset of, in this case, all these white male legislators who are discussing the past, present, and future of the Babanaki in Maine, but it's a completely unreflected historical product of colonialism. Um, the full statements regarding what reservations and treaties are uh, is also um, embarrassing, I find, uh, because in the case of these lands, these lands were not granted to the Penobscot or the Passamaquoddy. They were reserved by the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy. And all that these treaties tried to do implicitly was to uh, force the indigenous peoples to cede all those territories over which the Aboriginal title had not become extinguished. And that's a fine point that you don't see in the treaties themselves. You have to read between the lines to know what the, uh, the, uh, the purport is of these treaties. That is 
that by creating a deal uh, in the form of this Indian deed, in the form of a treaty, in the form of a sale, uh, that all kinds of consequences are triggered that the participants who are signing these treaties are not necessarily fully aware of. Uh, in other words, there are uh, legal minds at work uh, in Massachusetts at the time, and later also in the state of Maine, uh, people who have legal training and who understand property law, and they know that when you sign something that has that triggers all kinds of consequences that um, Judge Maynard, of course, will know much more about than I, but it's a very important uh, piece in the, in the treaties. And there's a reason why, uh, although the term itself at that time had a slightly different meaning, but why these treaties were called bargains. Um, in the 1790s, when um, Alexander Baring, the later Lord Ashburton, when he sails along the coast of Maine together as a guest with um, of Henry Knox, uh, who had just uh, ended his time as the Secretary of War, um, and also together with William Bingham, who is mentioned in this report, as if he had been granted that uh, land that was actually belonging to the Passamaquoddy and creates all the kind of legal confusion, uh, William Bingham was counted as perhaps the wealthiest American of his time. He was a banker, he was a lawyer, he was a privateer who had become very rich uh, during the Revolutionary War um, in the Caribbean. Uh, and uh, he was deeply entwined with the uh, speculative land business that Donna Loring has been talked about, that the issue of land was always first and foremost in people's minds. The whole uh, William Bingham deal with Henry Knox is very complicated, far too complicated for this broadcast uh, today to, di uh, to discuss. But uh, basically there was a land speculation involving millions of acres none of which were, quote, worked by Bingham, as Darren was just referring to, uh, but had been purchased purely for speculative reasons to make a killing by um, basically importing laborers who would work the land and thereby increase the value of those lands then to be sold. Uh, ultimately, the speculative land dealings uh, were far less successful than they seem to have been. Um, Bingham died uh, in England. Um, his son-in-law uh, was Alexander Baring. Uh, one of the towns in Washington County is named after Baring. Uh, and he, uh, Alexander Baring, as I mentioned before, uh, became Lord Ashburton, who is the guy who represented Great Britain in the treaty with Daniel Webster, in the Webster-Ashburton Treaty that uh, defined the uh, international boundary between Canada and the United States in 1842 three years after the so-called bloodless roosted war. In other words, there's a huge amount of stuff that I doubt that Proctor fully understood. Uh, he had five weeks to come up with his report. The legislative committee is here self-congratulatory, busy with uh, finding just what they have just done so outstanding. It rambles on every place uh, in terms of historical uh, misunderstandings, uh, misinterpretations, uh, and false conclusions. My final comment is that um, there's an issue here of what we call uh, ethnocide, another form of genocide, which is not necessarily the killing off of people in this case, but the wiping out of a ethnic group or nationality. Um, but here it happens by legislative means. So in other words, there's a bureaucratic ethnocide happening 
that was also on the minds of the state of the, of the people at the state of Maine in 1980 during the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, whereby experts representing the state were consulted whether the Penobscot tribe still constituted a tribe and whether the Passamaquoddy still constituted a tribe. And we've seen in earlier discussions that in the 1870s, there was a clear attempt to undefine the Passamaquoddy as a tribe. That, of course, has consequences in terms of treaty obligations, because the treaty obligation simply says, so long as they remain a nation. So if you can disprove that they are no longer anymore a nation, that basically resolves the problem, which is called the so-called Indian problem. Eric? No, I am struck by the, the reports as, as others have described it, it's uh, self-serving nature where it ignores facts that they brought out during the, the course of the testimony that they received. I mean, the one that strikes me is um, in discussing the appropriations that were made and how they've spent so much money for the tribes that they conveniently and nowhere in this committee report recognize uh, the fact that the main attorney general had said, yes, I went and started looking for how much we owed the tribes and it was some millions of dollars and I shut the door because I didn't want to know more. Um, nowhere in the report does it discuss this. And I would have thought that would have been something that, that the, the legislature would have wanted to know as, hey, okay, if we owe them, let's at least look at it. And in fact, if, if as a society and a state, Maine claims to be based on the rule of law, which is what it should be, that's what we set structure constitutional government's about, uh, you can't have the state's highest law enforcement officer saying, oh, okay, we owe money, um, but we're not going to pay it and we're not going to talk about it. That, that's a fraud by omission. The, uh, as I as I continued looking at the report and, and the discussion of the blood quantum on page 43 and the discussion of um, how that intermarriage will, will mean that there really are no Indians, I think they go directly to, to Dr. Prince's point, which is this is ethnocide. They are trying specifically to define tribes in a way that the tribes will no longer exist. And they ignore the fact um, that, they, that the tribes are sovereign nations, that the tribes are the ones that get to define who is and is not a member of their nation. Uh, that would be like... Um, the the uh, some other state, New Hampshire, saying, "Well, Maine, this is what you have to your citizens have to have if you're going to consider them Maine citizens." That's just that's just nonsense. And I think it all, not only is it nonsense, but it flies in the face of federal Indian law, which recognizes that the tribes get to define what is a uh, what constitutes tribal membership. I think by defining the court of blood, they're guaranteeing the eradication of the tribes eventually. That's what they want to do. That's what they're trying to do. And they're guaranteeing that it will occur. If you say that, that tribal members have to have a court of blood quantum, uh, eventually there will be no more tribal members. Um, and I thought uh, Professor Ranko's discussion 
on the the interest-free loans that was given um, was was really interesting and right on point. And, and I go even further. Not only did the tribes give interest-free, according to the state, give the state interest-free loans um, that did not necessarily need to be repaid. And this is where I think there's a real breach of a fiduciary duty if you're acting as a guardian. Uh, I don't know of anybody in acting in a fiduciary relationship, uh, much less even just a straight loan relationship that says, yeah, we'll give you money and we won't take a security interest in, eh, say, land or something else. Um, the idea that they're taking money from the tribes and saying, you know, Eastport, you want to borrow some, some money? Great. How about we have take a uh, mortgage on land that you claim you own, Eastport. The idea that Maine wouldn't do that, um, I, I can't imagine anyone going and saying that they had a, a guardian relationship, which is which kicks in that fiduciary responsibility, and saying, "Oh, I met that," even though I I just gave them the money and didn't take any kind of security interest to guarantee repayment. Especially when you're talking about those kind of dollars, because at those times, those were serious dollars. Um, so, um, I, and then I was fascinated on, on page 46 that, that the justification that um, the legislature or this committee had in recommending that interest not be included is the fact that uh, they considered the contributions and appropriations made to the Indians over a period of years, but entirely ignored again that one that we talked about earlier, which is the fact that there were millions owed to the tribes recognized by the state's highest law enforcement officer. But not only do they say, ah, well, we're not going to deal with that. They say, we're not even going to give the tribes interest on what's owed to them. We're just going to give them what we think is a fair estimate. Uh, and And I guess I would Given the state's past record, I'd have some real questions about the fairness of the estimate. Um, I thought interesting on the long-term policy the, the, towards the Indians, the, they are, as, as others have said, designed to um, destroy the culture of the tribal members, but particularly when I looked at number three, which was encourage agriculture by material help, supervision, and uh, definite ownership of land to those who work in. What they're really saying with that, is, with that definite ownership of land to those who will work it, is they're going to destroy communal ownership. And the tribes have traditionally held the land communally and do today. And so by, by saying um, what that their, their policy is, they're gonna actually destroy the tribes. When you destroy communal ownership, you destroy the tribes because you, do, you eradicate the reserves uh, that exist for the tribes. And it's much similar to the allotments that were done in Oklahoma where they would take the tribal land, they'd break up the tribal land and they would go, okay, each of you members of the tribe get this certain amount of land and then the tribe, tribal member would be able to alienate that land, would be able to sell that land without having to do anything further, and there would be no more tribal lands. Um, so I, I was 
I thought that was particularly problematic. Those were those were my initial thoughts as I looked at it, Donna. Carol? Yeah, I concur uh, uh, with uh, everything that uh, has been said so far. Um, one of the issues that I find uh, interesting uh, in a troubling way uh, is the structural uh, organization of this committee uh, and the way it went about by um, inviting uh, Proctor to do the research. Uh, he had no um, previous background uh, in Indian affairs, so he worked for five weeks. And as we see here uh, in the so-called introduction, that uh, Ralph Proctor, uh, who made this study, devoted, quote, more than five weeks to this work. He examined the laws relating to Indian affairs, old records, um, and treaties, records of departments conferred with representatives of the departments interested in Indian, Indian affairs, visited the reservations, talked with Indians, and otherwise attempted to assemble material from all available sources, end quote. Um, at that time, there were tribal representatives uh, in the main state legislature. Uh, the Penobscot had one and the Passamaquoddy had one. So it's kind of interesting. We know that these tribal representatives uh, were not allowed to vote. Uh, Donna, of course, knows that because she's been a tribal representative herself. But here's the odd thing is that the past, present, and future of the tribes is being discussed. The tribes themselves have elected a tribal representative to the main state legislature, and they're not even mentioned by name. We only know that one of them, namely the one for the Penobscot, has actually been dismissed by the legislative committee earlier that we have read as someone who had a, a disputable uh, criminal record. In fact, that man at that time was fighting, as this report was issued, uh, in the Canadian army and was wounded in Italy and later returned to the Penobscot Reservation. So the scandalous nature of this committee in terms of claiming that they had done a good job, talked to Indians, quote unquote, that none of the quote Indians, end quote, was invited to participate in the discussion about past, present, future. And that is indicative, and the term has been earlier used, paternalist, but I would say the colonial attitude, the colonial, unreconstructed colonial attitude about subjects and those who make the decisions about the subjects, but they have no say. So the, the, the native people of Maine were treated as the morons that they had been lumped with by legislation in the 19th century, namely incompetent, uh, morons uh, who have no capabilities of making their own decisions about their own future, while at the same time recruiting them uh, and, and promoting them in the army to fight the Japanese, the Germans, and the Italians. That's during wartime. It's scandalous, really. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's an excellent point, Harold, that you know, we're sitting here going, okay, the legislature, this report is submitted to the legislature. It's supposed to be a fact-finding impartial report and where are the indian voices there where are the tribal voices i mean we they've taken testimony from a number of different entities a number of different people but there are no tribal members that were called to testify there were 
um, non-natives who were called to testify about what they thought they heard, but from a, a, the, the perspective of uh, the rule of law and the idea of what we're talking about as far as uh, gathering information that is, that is supposed to be tested, there was nothing but hearsay testimony, which can be construed any way that, that the hearer wants it to be construed, which I think is extraordinarily problematic. And then I agree with you again, I go even further, why not put a tribal members on the committee itself? If you're asking to say, okay, well, let's talk about how do we how do we go forward? It would seem that, um, and in fact, the treaties themselves recognize that there are two parties to them, and instead we're having one party say this is how we're going to go forward, and the other party is going to be forced to accept it without any out any input as to how it should work going forward. At the very least, there should have been uh, tribal representatives that were in the legislature on the committee, but it would have been even better if it had been a, a committee that the tribal communities could have said, okay, we're going to put, you've got three people from the Senate, we're going to put three people from uh, the tribal communities, we're going to put four people from, or, or seven, a total of seven people from tribal communities, so that we have some some balance in analyzing the evidence. But here, the evidence or the facts, quote, facts, close quote, um, that are brought in are what the state wants them to be. And then the state makes its long-term policies going forward based on that. Um, it, it is scandalous. It is absolutely scandalous. It's a kangaroo committee. That's really yep. what it is. Right. Uh, it's a kangaroo committee. And I'm sorry for the kangaroos because I like kangaroos and they belong to Australia. So it's the wrong animal. For this continent. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I was thinking that, yeah, uh, uh, Eric, that's right. Uh, it's almost like it is like they had a predetermined uh, goal that they wanted to reach and they all knew it. And they just needed to justify what they were going to do. Yep. So yeah, they back into yeah, yeah. Here's a here's a decision, and I will back into that. We only allow the evidence in that that will prove what we want the end result to be. Right, and when you think that you know these uh, the land claims kind of came from these discussions, sort of, uh, you know, like you do the treaty from uh, uh, 1820, uh, and you know you you follow this up to to the land claims. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's a, I think it's really ludicrous that the tribes even consider these, this land claims, uh, to be, um, the, they've allowed it to be the defining, uh, document for the relationship between the tribes and the state, which is really, it, it's based on fraud. I see over and over again that, you know, that, and we've heard over and over again, oh, a treaty is a treaty. That's what comes out of, has been the, the mantra out of the governor's office and the, the attorney general's office since the Land Claims Settlement Act. But I keep going back to, and I, I was wondering, uh, Professor Prince, when there was a treaty, I was reading uh, the other day, there were the treaties between um, England and the tribes in Maine, I think it was a, the late 1600s, early 1700s, because basically 
there was a period of time where um, the tribes in Maine in, a, in an alliance with, with France had pretty much extinguished all English settlements in the state of Maine. And there was a recognition by the King of England, I thought, and, and I'm sure you can speak much, much better on it than I am, but I, from my perspective, I thought there was a recognition by the King of England that these were tribal lands. Maine was was um, tribal lands. And so a report that says, oh no, that there was no evidence that these were tribal lands ever is categorically false. Well, that's, that is totally false indeed. Um, and the uh, treaty that you're referring to, I think is the one that concluded the first Anglo-Wabanaki war of uh, 1678, um, whereby, which was a extension of what's often referred to as King Philip War, okay. um, but in Maine really had a different uh, nature uh, than there. And then indeed the Grand Chief of the Penobscot Nation, Madagwando, was then owed a, um, a pack of corn, I think, um, uh, from all the English settlers as a recognition of his, the, of the sovereign status, right? Uh, otherwise you wouldn't owe that to um, to anyone, right? But here's this that kind of token, and that of course, of course um, uh, was oh that every year, right? Every was, year, right? Every and, year uh, they were supposed to pay him. Supposed to, right? And then we get, of course, the second Anglo-Babanaki War, and then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and then the sixth. What is uh, noteworthy, though, is um, that what happened to the um, Abenaki peoples of the Kennebec and the Androscoggin. And it's extraordinary and not really properly laid out for the public to understand today, even today, is the dispossession by so-called Indian deeds that the very wealthy uh, land speculators in Boston, James Bowden, uh, the governor of uh, Massachusetts, one was one of these speculators, a member of the Kennebec proprietors of the so-called Plymouth Land Company, um, as well as his uh, brother. And then, of course, Bowdoin College benefited also directly from uh, these land deals. Uh, but the uh, Kennebec Abenaki, who were still rec recognized in the 1750s, there was the war of genocide was first um, uh, declared against them. Uh, and then a year later, also to the Penobscot by uh, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Phipps, when he issued the infamous uh, bounty uh, on uh, Penobscot um, uh, men, women, and children, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 20 pounds for a child or a woman, 40 pounds for a Penobscot man. It was open hunting season. Um, that was an actual, not ethnocide, that was genocide, right? That was a genocide of war. The Kennebec Abenaki um, were um, uh, targeted in the genocidal war and then suddenly vanish very conveniently in all the territories that the Boston merchants, who also were in the Boston, uh, in the Massachusetts legislature and in the Massachusetts government, James Bowden became the governor of Massachusetts, that they suddenly are wiped out. They are no longer there. Uh, they're completely wiped out, not so much physically, although there was also a mass killing going on, but also bureaucratically, legislatively, through so-called Indian deeds that were repeatedly, repeatedly disputed as being valid by the tribes saying, I don't know that, that document. What is the document? Stop waving these documents in our face. And they're perpetually having these words that they did not understand because they were written in English, often not translated or poorly translated. And uh, they're basically uh, chased off the map. So here to read 
that indeed, as you brought up, uh, Judge Maynard, uh, about the fact that how could these small numbers of people ever having had any claim over that much land in Maine, right, thereby undermining the sovereignty claim. And meanwhile, referring to William Bingham, right, as one dude in Philadelphia who uh, has the so-called uh, Penobscot million, right, a million acres that the guy bought, plus another million in the, uh, on the upper Kennebec, the two million acres, and ditto with uh, some of his cronies. Uh, one of them uh, is Lord Ashburton. So in other words, these guys are having these fabulous titles, Lord Ashburton, but what they really are, are exploiters of people who are being pushed with their backs against the wall, uh, who have often no understanding of the, leg the, the, the legal lease that is thrown at them and have no control over the documents. In other words, it's, it's as we already talked about, scandalous, the fact that these kind of records are being used to wage war against indigenous peoples in the 20th century or now in the early 21st century. And, and to your point, um, not the because the documents were written in English and not understandable, it is a fundamental precept of the law that in order for there to be a contract, in order for there to be a transfer of land, there has to be a meeting of the minds. If there is not a meeting of the minds, if there is an agreement that, yes, this is what I'm giving and this is what you're getting, then you don't have a contract. The contract is void ab initio, void from the beginning. And so the idea that the people even today are hinging on, oh, well, they signed these deeds way back then when they didn't, when there was no meeting of the minds, there was no clear concurrent agreement um, is a fallacy. Or outright uh, falsifications, right? Because no, absolutely. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of these documents that had not the purpose of having any reflection of a quote in, in the indeed. It had the purpose of showing to another white settler the fact that you had claims based on purchase. In other words, the 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 the, the Indians were simply studious in terms of uh, their cartoons. They didn't, weren't even relevant. It wasn't about them. It was really about um, demonstrated property rights by having a title to uh, to land that you supposedly had purchased for that Indian from that Indian person. When the Indian native people themselves are confronted with these deeds and say we don't even recognize what these who, who they are and, and who even had the right to sell that, it's completely irrelevant because the function of the deed was really within colonial society to show um, landowners that they had supposedly title. And that became then all these lawsuits, which is the reason why we know about them, right? Yeah. The whole thing is a farce. And when I hear about the so-called land declarations that are so popular today, um, I'm kind of thinking those words sound very nice and it rings so well in the churches and in the academia you know, when, and, and in museums when people are making speeches, we are here on Wabanaki land or we are here on the unceded Wabanaki lands. And I'm saying, do you actually know what you're talking about? And the answer is, well, no. <laughs> Eric? No, I, I, I think we're just about at the point and I don't really have a whole lot more unless you've got a specific question, Donna. No, I think uh, we've basically uh, covered um, the the last the report and i think what we didn't do at the beginning was to say that all of the references you know like on page 
such and such uh, paragraph, you know, that those are all taken from the Proctor report. Yep. So when you read this, uh, this final uh, recommendation from the research committee, it refers back to Proctor's report. So, I mean, you just can't, you can't take this and say, well, it's, it's all BS, you know, there's no proof to this or whatever. This was uh, actual uh, transcripts, actual uh, main state uh, legislator, legislative reports. So, you know, right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful that, that the, the, the uh, legislature or legislators have uh, taken such steps to document everything. It really helps us out a lot, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to say with that, we're going to end. Um, and uh, and next, next month, we're going to look back at everything we've we've uh, read, and just do a final uh, review. And uh, I'll I'll be inviting uh, a federal attorney to be part of our conversation to see what the federal uh, view is of what happened here in Maine. So it should be a fairly interesting uh, show next month. So. Uh, I'll, I hope you guys can all be with us when we do that show. Who are you thinking of inviting? Yes, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Rebecca uh, Tozzi, who's a professor at the uh, University of Arizona. She's uh, widely published on sovereignty and self-determination, environmental policy, and cultural rights. So I really think she'd be a, a great um, addition to, uh, to our show next month. Looking forward to it. Great. So, okay. So I hope to see uh, you guys next month. And uh, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. I want to thank Judge Eric Menner, Professor Harold Prince, and Darren Ranko for being on the show. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>